So let's move on to the next presentation. I wanted to talk about, it's, this could have been a talk to lead in the whole discussion about, you know, what do we, what do we, how do we treat metastatic colorectal cancer? We have a lot of fancy stuff going on. We have a lot of things in biomarkers and targeted therapies, immunotherapies, but I really wanted to show how I treat metastatic colorectal cancer. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, most patients do not have a targetable biomarker. And I think this is something which I feel very strongly about. Now, we have all these treatment options. This ties into what Eric showed you earlier. We have a lot of treatment options at hand right now, including, you know, PD-1 antibodies. And the question is really, how do we choose treatment approaches in first, second, third, fourth line, you know, for patients? And I do integrate surgical approaches local regional approaches, you know, which we're not talking a lot about here at this meeting, into our treatment armamentarium for patients to keep them alive and uh, maintain their quality of life. Now, when you look at all these different treatment options, you look to guidelines for guidance, and I can show you how simplified guidelines can be by going back to 2012, when the European guidelines showed a very simple way how to treat colorectal cancer. This is what it is. And this was before we had BRAF and, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors and TAS-102. Um, now, Eric has already pointed out that the European guidelines have been much improved since then. And I think it all makes sense now. So I really encourage you to read the ESMO guidelines, which are pretty much a really reflection of evidence-based medicine at this point in time. So that's a simplified way of treating patients. Now, what are the... Um, in treatment, the factors that influence treatment choice. And this is a slide which you've seen in several different forms. On the right upper hand side is exactly the four markers that Eric pointed out when we talk about molecular parameters. It's RAS, BRAF, MSLI, and HER2. These are the markers we need to know nowadays. Not all of them necessarily upfront in treatment decisions, but at my center we actually obtain these uh, markers right up front. Patients obtain a, a whole a, a genetic profile, which also includes N-track, fusions, etc. But this is what we need to do. But then there are factors, patient characteristics, tumor characteristics, excitedness, and patient preference. And the goal is to really identify the best treatment approach in kind of summarizing all of these factors. And some of them we do intuitively. We treat younger patients we do treat younger patients different than older patients. This is not kind of ageism. It's just reality. What's happening in tolerability of treatments is different. Now, key points in the management of metastatic colorectal cancer, we can cure some patients. We need, to help, we need the help of dedicated surgeons to help us with you know, curing patients stage 4 disease. And we sometimes overestimate how many patients can be cured, but it's definitely something which I think is very important. For the majority of patients at this point in time, still the goal is to keep them around in good quality of life as long as possible, and patients benefit from access to all active agents. And I think that's a very critical point. When you design, when I design a treatment approach, I always try to have plan B and plan C and plan D at hand in order to have fallback position if treatments don't work. Then we have biomarkers to identify patients who don't respond to treatment, mainly egf septa antibodies. And then we have more biomarkers now emerging to uh, select patients for a specific therapy. Now, two points that I like to make. First of all, 
you know, when we have never had, except for MSR high cancers and perhaps BRIV 600 e mutant tumors, we never had this one breakthrough event that really changed the way we treat metastatic colorectal cancer. It's not this imatinib and gist effect that really changed everything, and we keep patients alive with one therapeutic intervention much, much longer. What we are really benefiting from and our patients benefit from is the results of sequential incremental benefits, improvements over time. When we, we move the bar slightly with every single added drug, oxaplatin, there was never a study that were a three phase three study that showing that Falfox was superior to 5-Ifilucovorin. Not a single of these studies had improved overall survival's outcome. But we still incorporate oxaplatin in our treatment approach quite a bit, as you know. So all the benefits, and these are all the phase three studies that were uh, reported, had hazard ratios in, the, in overall survival hazard ratios between 0 0.7 and 0 0.8, so not great. And meat improvements on the right-hand side is in the range of a few months. Still, patients benefit from the added incremental changes over time. The other point is, what is more important, optimizing first-line treatment or the overall concept of continuum of care, which Eric also introduced. And you know, when you look at the first-line progression-free survival in a decade, where we started using biologic agents, which is in, um, in the, the blue line, it hasn't changed. What has changed is overall survival. It's the integration of all the treatment approaches sequentially which really makes a difference. Now, this is an old paper, and we uh, really kind of set the stage of this continuum of care because we did realize in the era of just chemotherapy, five of you, oxaplatin, renotecan, that patients benefit from access to all three, three at that time, agents, regardless what sequence you chose to start with. So in that treatment principle, I think, is still very important. Patients benefit from all being exposed to all active agents. Very important point. Now, let me chime in one thing, because you know, I feel very strongly about my fall foxes. You know, you might have known that there is fall fox four, fall fox six, modified fall fox six, modified fall fox seven, whatever out there is. What is it all based on? At the time when we only had five of you, we thought that five of you was actually two different agents. A bolus 5-FU, which inhibit RNA synthesis, and infusional 5-FU, pump therapy, continued administration, inhibiting DNA synthesis. Modulated by leucovorin, the green box here, we developed regimens combining bolus and infusional 5-FU, thinking we, we target the tumor in two different ways. So the first regimen developed by Emery de Gramont's group in France was actually a regimen consisting of leucovorin in green, bolus injection of 5-FU, some infusion of 5-FU, and the same thing the second day. So that was LV5-FU2 that was simplified with one bolus and later no bolus injection anymore of 5-FU. When oxaplatin and renotecan came about, these were the different regimens which were formed. Now, why is that important? The side effects of these regimens are very different. The bolus component of 5-FU this is my personal approach, really inflicts a lot of toxicity without helping patients a lot. And so why we, it, so in a palliative setting where you have quality of life as a main issue, you know, you want to decrease things like neutropenia and mucositis, which are linked. And this is only related or really related to the bolus 5-FU component. The risk of neutropenia is associated with the more boluses you have, the more 
um, uh, neutropenia and mucositis you have. I personally, my clinical practice, when I use Folfox as first-line treatment, and I know a lot of you use Folfox as first-line treatment, I always use modified Folfox 7. No bolus 5 few keep it oxaplatin at 85 milligrams. And we have data, actually, supported data for phase three trial, one trial that Howard Hoxter and I led together, the CONCEPT study, published in Annals of Oncology, Optimox studies. This is where, if you, have, if you have any doubt that there are data out there, the data are here. Bevacizumab, Cetuximab, Pantumab can be easily added. And when I treat patients up front with modified Folfox 7, I never, palliative setting, never give more than eight rounds of treatment. Because after that, neurotoxicity comes up. Then you switch to maintenance therapy, utilize the positive interaction between a fluoropyrimidine and bevacizumab, and we have also data for 5-FU and egf antibodies. And I actually also use a similar maintenance approach, not as rigid with the eight cycles when you have fulfiri around. So that's how I personally treat my patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. You can reutilize oxaplatin later at some point in time. Now, biologics, of course, for a long time was just monoclonal antibodies. You know, there are difference between murin and chimeric and mouse anti uh, humanized antibodies. I want to give you a quick help to identify the nomenclature of antibodies. I saw this actually being published on social media at some point. Um, MAP is monoclonal antibody in the name, of course, cetuximab, panituumab, et cetera. MOMAP, Zymab, Zumab, MUMAP talks about the IgG backbone, what kind of how much mouse there is in this antibody. The next syllable before that is the most important one with regard to mechanism of action, is an antibody that binds to a tumor cell, TU, is an antibody that has immune modulation, LI, pembrolizumab, or is it a cardiovascular antibody not really targeting tumor cells like bevacizumab as a VEGF inhibitor? This can help you identify at least somewhat the mechanism of action and the component of a monoclonal antibody in the era where we see monoclonal antibodies every week approved in various diseases. Okay, key points to enter VEGF therapy, so we're moving from chemotherapy to biologic treatments. Anti-VEGF therapy. Bevacizumab, ramucirumab, and aflibercept by themselves have very little activity in terms of tumor shrinkage. They are cytostatic agents. Cytostatic agents only work as long as you use them. So duration of therapy is an important point. They do not target tumor cells directly, so they're a little bit immune to the tumor resistance development by genetic manipulation. The resistance mechanisms for anti-VEGF therapies are different, and they might come at a different point than resistance to chemotherapy, and that's why we've seen data that VEGF inhibition works beyond progression. So even if you, uh, tumors might be resistant to chemotherapy, one chemotherapy, they might be still uh, sensitive to continued VEGF inhibition beyond progression. We have actually three positive phase three trials that look at VEGF inhibition beyond progression, and those are the ones with different drugs, bevacizumab, ziflibacept or flibacept, and ramucirumab. They all showed a moderate but real improvement in overall survival when Bevacizumab, when VEGF inhibition was carried from first into second line treatment beyond progression. Now, EGF-septa antibodies are different. 
they target tumor cells. We've seen more and more data about identifying resistance mechanisms to each of the antibodies. I know that Pashtun will talk about this in circulating tumor DNA data when we look at the emergence, and Eric already pointed this out in the slide from Josep Tabanero, that we can now identify resistant clones by using circulating tumor DNA liquid biopsy to sequentially follow patients. I think this is a very new era in the management of patients. But up front, the ideal candidate for EGF septa antibody therapy is ras BRAF type HER2 negative, and left-sided. And there's some overlap between sidedness and the other markers, so we can identify patients much better now who are candidates for cetuximab, panitumab up front. And in my clinical practice, I have, I'm using Panitumumab, actually, the preferred EGF septa antibody in Tennessee, based on allergic reactions, propensity to cetuximab. I used panitumumab a lot more than before when I did not know exactly who these patients were. I have a much better understanding, I think, you know, who can benefit from EGF septa antibody therapy. Now, what about sightedness, the idea of sightedness? Yes, sightedness is a prognostic factor. Uh, right-sided tumors do more poorly than left-sided tumors. Data almost 20 years ago here, Peter O'Dwyer's study in JCO, there's a six-month difference, five to six-month difference between right and left-sided tumors in the era of just five of you. Now, in the context of egf antibody therapy, there is another predictive factor that comes into play. It seems to be that it's beyond the prognostic implication only, right, only left-sided tumors seem to benefit from egf antibody therapy. This is a study, Brulé et al., which analyzed the last line, a third line, colorectal cancer study, cetuximab versus best supportive care. And you can see no benefit, no difference between best supportive care and cetuximab. In right-sided tumors, all the benefits were in left-sided tumors. Now, um, We'll, I'll show you a little bit of a caveat in this in a, in a minute when you analyze this a little bit further. Now, we have data from first-line studies. Eric's uh, uh, crystal study, Eric was the one who really moved cetuximab in this study into first-line treatment for RAS, actually at that point, KRAS, wild-type tumors. Um, but we see that in right-sided tumors on the right-hand side, naturally, there's no difference in progression-free survival and overall survival with the addition of cetuximab to Folfiri. And this has been shown also in the U.S. study here, the CLGB SWOC 8405 study, which looked at different tumor location, uh, right and left-sided, and compared bevacizumab to cetuximab. These are the curves for the cetuximab added to chemotherapy component, orange right-sided tumors, uh, blue left-sided tumors, there's a big difference. I mean, there's a difference of almost, of more than two years in median survival, whereas the bevacizumab components here, the bevacizumab arms track similarly. There might be a little bit of a, pro a prognostic implication, but overall bevacizumab is sightedness agnostic, meaning it works in right and left-sided cancers, and it's our preferred biologic agent for right-sided cancers, no doubt. Now, I don't want to go into the details of, you know, whether it's significant or not. Bottom line is right-sided tumors do not seem to benefit from egf antibody therapies up front. Now, the interesting thing is you have ESMO experts, European experts, and U.S. experts in NCCN, and they look at the data and they come to somewhat different conclusions. For instance, the ESMO guidelines say, okay, 
in left-sided tumors, EGF receptor antibodies are the standard of care. And in NCCN, you can say EGF receptor antibodies or bevacizumab can both be used. In right-sided tumors, Esmo said, you know, there are some patients who might benefit in terms of response rate. So you could use EGF receptor antibodies in right-sided tumors. The NCCN guidelines don't use it in first line and likely not even in any lines of therapy. So I would never consider myself on the same level as ESMO or NCCN, but my preference is EGF receptor antibodies in left-sided tumors, RAS, RAF, wild type, are preferred. I think that's, I use them in left-sided tumors. In right-sided tumors, I do not use them first line, but I might use them in later line and explain to, that, to you why I use, uh, why, why I say that, which might be a little bit counterintuitive compared to, you know, first line, no use, later line, you might use it. Why would that be? Okay. So tumor location is one of the parameters that we use to identify patients for certain therapies. And as Eric pointed out, there's a lot of effort to really link the tumor location decidedness factors to some molecular signature. Um, you know, whether it's a gene expression profile, individual markers, etc. And so far, we have not seen one aspect really pan out. And that's embarrassing because in the era of whole genome sequencing, we should be able to figure this out. But I think we're ignoring something. And you know, we have focused, you know, this diagram, the hallmarks of cancer, you know, the interaction between tumor and host has been published and revised several times. And it really, I think, is missing one component. We're not looking in the right spot. And again, as you heard earlier, the microbiome is the non-innocent bystander. There's a third party in our body that really influences tumor biology and actually treatment effects. And we know the microbiome is different in right versus left-sided tumors. And we know the microbiome, we don't have a, anything, you know, this talk here on microbiome. That's why I bring this up here. Microbiome is important because we actually see even in other cancers like melanoma, which we know responds to immunotherapy quite well, the gut microbiome can modulate responses. In distant metastatic disease, so you have a melanoma, which has nothing to do with your gut, and has metastatic disease and use PD-1 antibodies, and depending on what kind of bacteria in the patient's gut, there is a differential effect whether patients have a chance to respond to immunotherapy or not. So the gut microbiome, and I don't want to go into details here, the gut microbiome serves as an immune modulator or can predict whether or not patients have a response to immunotherapy. Now, for colon cancer, very interesting data from the Dana-Farber group and others um, that looked at Tumors can be infected by bacteria. Colorectal cancer can be infected by bacteria. This Fusobacterium nucleatum is commonly found in colorectal cancer tissue. And when, when tumors metastasize, you can find the same bacterial metastasis, which I think is quite remarkable. So you take this, so this is the correlation between tumor and metastasis. So now you take this tumor out and you put it into a xenograft into mouse model, you can still find the bacteria. Then you start treating the bacteria with antibiotics and you affect tumor growth in the xenograft, which shows you there's some interplay between the infection, the tumor, or the, 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 the contamination, whatever you might call it, the presence of the bacteria in the cancer, and tumor biology. Very interesting data. 
So back to a few treatment questions, a few common questions. So when you have a left-sided RAS-RAF wild-type cancer in the United States, still a lot of these patients get bevacizumab-based first-line treatment. Would you continue Bev beyond progression or switch in this RAS-RAF wild-type tumor to an EGF-receptor antibody in second line? That's one of the questions we have in our clinical practice. Uh, so I continue Bev beyond progression. Based on the French data here, another prodige study, very interesting. They looked at first-line chemo plus BEV-treated patients and then exactly randomized patients to BEV continuation beyond progression or EGF-septor antibodies to Tuximab here as a second-line treatment. And you can see here, this is a GEM oncology publication just this year, that the difference in progression-free survival and overall survival were more in favor of using BEV beyond progression than switching the treatment to an EGF-septor antibody. I can't tell you why that is, but these are randomized data in about 130 patients. So on the right-hand side, you see overall survival for KRAS exon 2. But if you look at all RAS, RAF, BALTAP, still you see a trend, not statistically significant, a trend toward benefit for bevacizumab. Why would that be? So if you start with BEV, RAS, RAF, BALTAP, left-sided tumor, so real candidates for EGF-receptor antibody therapy, if you start with BEV in a chemotherapy doublet, and you go to an EGF-receptor antibody in second line, your third line is regorafenib or TAS-102. If you start, and then you have best supportive care. When you start with BEV and you go for BEV beyond progression, you have another line of therapy. And this sounds trivial, and it's something that I initially didn't really believe in before I saw the randomized data, but you increase options for patients down the line. Interestingly, we had a long discussion about the difference between FIA3 and 84.05, the US and the European study that compared cetuximab to bevacizumab, and the use of BEV beyond progression was much more pronounced in the United States, more than 50% than in the FIA3 study. So whether this really influenced the discrepancy in outcome between these two different studies um, is, is up for, for us to, to further validate. So right-sided cancers have poor prognosis. Should we treat them differently, independent of their RAS and BRAF status? And yes, if I have a patient with a who's a candidate for a triplet therapy, right-sided tumors, that's where a triplet actually has shown to work. This is a, a kind of retros, a kind of an unplanned exploratory analysis of the TRIBE data, which looked at Folfox theory plus BEV versus Folf theory plus BEV. But the data showed that all the benefit we saw overall in the study was only linked to right-sided tumors. Right-sided tumors have bad prognosis, uh, aggressive tumors need more aggressive therapy. So if a patient who is a candidate for triplet, right-sided tumors independent of BRAF and RAS, consider using a triplet. Um, would, you, would I never use EGF-septor antibody in RAS, RAF, right, uh, wild-type right-sided cancers? So wild-type right-sided cancers? Yes, I would, because I might not use it early on, but there is actually data, published data, in a, this last line study, so Tuximab versus best supportive care. There's a survival split. You know, it's not completely negative here on the left-hand side, a, a difference in survival in the right-sided tumors. But I would not use EGF-receptor antibodies early in the treatment. But if someone, a patient asks me, so do I really not have a chance to respond? I have a right-sided tumor, but it's BRAF and RAS wild type. Are you sure you can't give me EGF-receptor antibody therapy? Of course I use it because I want to give my patients a chance to, um, to benefit. Which comes first, regorafenib and TAS-102? So 
there might be a little bit of a bias. You might know that I'm, uh, Eric and I were the PIs of the Regorafenib study. The, the correct side led to the approval of uh, Regorafenib. I use Regorafenib first in most patients who are candidates for the drug because it's a more complicated drug to give. TAS-102, the pool of patient candidates for TAS is larger because I would treat patients with PS2 at this point with TAS-102 because of the lower side effect profile, a better side effect profile. I would not treat a patient with PS2 with Regorafenib. If you wait too long and you want to make all active agents available to all patients, you, get, you might not get Regorafenib in, which is an active agent, particularly when you use it according to the Redos uh, approach, which we'll talk about at some point. Okay, conclusions, we have a lot of treatment options. Goal of therapy is to keep patients around in good quality of life. Um, molecular parameters are expanding our approach to what truly targeted therapy, but most patients still, the largest benefit that the average patient has at this point in time is still based on chemotherapy. It's sobering to say that, but I think the most active agent we have in colorectal cancer at this point in time for the average patient is 5-FU. And that is older than I am, meaning it's very old. So, yeah, <laughs> Kathy. <laughs> so, but that's really, if you take one drug on an island to treat your GI malignancies, it's probably some form of fluoroprimidine and not anything else. Thank you very much.